Hey everybody, it is episode 81 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you with Steve from Austin, Texas. Hey Steve. Hello Chris. (laughs) We are here today for episode one of our Endorphin Book Club series. Starting today, we will have shortly Alex Hutchinson in studio with us. He's also doing an event here tonight at Rogue Running, which we're super excited about. We'll be talking about his book, Endure, getting into a little bit more detail on that today with him. We've, of course, had Alex on the show a couple of other times. He'll be our first three-time guest, Steve, but Alex was with us for episode 48 as well as episode 64, where we also talked about his book, Endure. This time, we're going to drill into some of the science, get into some of the practical applications you might be able to take away from the book. So. We do believe there's some new interesting stuff we'll be covering with Alex today, and hopefully that everybody's had a chance to read the book. So there you go. We'll have Alex here in a second. As our intro this week, Steve, we need to do a recap of the U.S. Outdoor Track and Field Championships that, that came off this weekend. I get to show up today with bragging rights you do. as I won. I got our, beat. I won our prediction contest by two points. 39. I rallied, though. 39 to 37, you were in a six-point hole after the first, after Saturday, but then came back strong in the 800 and the 5K to at least give me a run for my money, but my success in the 10K, the 15, and the steeple ultimately got the better of you, but I would say we did very well overall. Both of us had seven out of 10 winners picked, and... I had picked I picked 20 out of 30 podium finishers. You had 19 out of 30 podium finishers. So that's pretty solid and I actually also picked correctly one and two in the correct order four times out of 10 events. So I'd say we did pretty well overall. Although this this US Championships might have been more predictable with fewer of the big players in the mix. But that now means that I have the lead in our little series. I won, I won U.S. Champs last year. You won World Champs. We were tied going into World Indoors. We tied at World Indoors. <laughs> and then now I've got the edge after this outdoor So after all this is all said and done, what is your lead? Two? I, well, I don't know about yeah, point-wise. Do I don't know uh, about point-wise, yeah. but at least in terms of events. Because I think I kicked I, your butt at World Championships. No, but. I came back on that oh, one, Oh, that's though. true. That's I true. I came back on that one after the 10K. But Just anyway, like I did on this I'd one. I'd have to go yeah. back and look. Yeah. But... Anyway, it doesn't matter. We do it all for one we reason. Do it for anyway, fun. we do it for yep. fun, for sure. And it was interesting. Before we jump into kind of a quick event by event recap, I did want to ask you this question: Did anything, or what was the most surprising result for you this past weekend? I mean, I guess the most surprising thing for me was uh, shouldn't have been a surprise. But it was just the way Centro crushed that 15 and the way he handled them. Of course, it was the U.S. champs, and so it's a little bit harder to, like, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in other big, the big meets that are, that are to come. But it's just, it's a bit surprising to me how that guy can just always have the right tactics. It must come down to something innate in him. You know, something that he has been born with and not something he learned because the man just is always in the right position. Even when it's bad positioning, he still gets himself very quickly into the right order. 
Um, he should teach a tutorial, preferably to Brenda Martinez, so she right. can maybe learn a little bit. Seriously, you but, you did predict that. I know, but result. it was a little bit. I guess I was not expecting. I did. I mean, I picked Gregoric for the win. I wasn't discounting Centro from a from his uh, tactics tactical perspective. I was questioning him based on his fitness and where he was at and whether he had the fight in him. And um, you know, I guess now what I say, Chris, is I won't. I will be. I will be much less likely to question him again. Um, and as we look forward to next year's world championships and world championship season, um, we have not seen the end of Matthew Centrowitz. And uh, that's a really good thing. What about you? What was most surprising for you? The most surprising for me was Lopez Lamont winning the 10K. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty big surprise. I mean, yeah. the, the last time you won an outdoor championships was in 2010 as a 1,500-meter runner. And essentially, since then, he's been up and down, but never really been that great. And any time I've picked him to do something in the 5K or... Uh, I don't know if this is his first U.S. Championship 10K to race, but anytime I've picked him to do anything, he always sort of craps to bed, and we know he's struggled a little bit with consistency through the years. So that was the biggest surprise to me, that he show up and got, showed up and got the win. Now, the field was pretty weak, not having Leonard Career and some of the other big names in it. No Rupp, no Chris Derrick, and a few others that are your t- more typical 10K specialists. So that gave him an opening, but you still have to win the race. And he had other legit players in the field that he did have to beat, including Kip Chichir. So hats off to Lopez Lamong. I think that's a cool comeback story. I watched Ryan Hill's interview after his 5K, and he said that he and Lopez had been training together consistently for four months. Hill for the 5K and Lopez, obviously, for the 10K. So it wasn't a surprise to him. So it wasn't a surprise <laughs> to him. So he'd you know, he'd gotten a good four-month block with him, and if we'd known that, maybe we'd have, we yeah. would have given him a better chance. But I think it's cool, you know, for those that don't know Lopez's story, he's a lost boy of Sudan. He's got a book on it. He was the flag bearer. For the closing ceremonies, I believe, for the 2008 Beijing Olympics. So he's an Olympian, has a couple of U.S. titles in outdoor, and at least one U.S. indoor title in the 15, but it's sort of been floating for the last eight years without any big results. So to see him kind of come back and get this result at the 10K level is, is cool. And, you know, if he's committed, he's got a chance to make some waves here because we know the 10K, at least for men right now, is going to be a little bit lacking in depth now that Ruff has moved on to the marathon. Yeah, and it seems like it maybe took a little while for Jerry Jerry's Schumacher's program to take with Lopez. One of the gripes or questions about Lopez has always been just his ability to stay focused through an entire training cycle. And it seems like he would always get distracted by heading back to Sudan and doing uh, humanitarian work, volunteer work. He, I know he had a movie in the mix for a little while, and so it's good to see that he's back and rolling. Um, yeah, it was pretty amazing. You know, one other thing, Chris, about this from an overview standpoint, um, um, we're going to get into it in the specifics, and I'm sure we'll be saying this person's name over and over and over again. But it wasn't a surprise what I'm going to say next, but just absolutely next-level shit from Shelby Houlihan. You know what I mean? I mean, to me, that's <laughs> I couldn't. I almost wanted to say that was my surprise, because, but it wasn't a surprise. It was just more like jaw-dropping the way she won her two races at this race at this meet was, which we'll talk about specifically. But to me, that was my big takeaway from the whole meet was just like, it should be Evan Yeager and his seven championships. And 
you know, that, that he now is even with Henry Marsh as being the most, the, the greatest number of wins, national championship wins for a uh, steeplechaser in the United States. But I think Shelby's races, I went back and watched them and the acceleration was just next level. It was crazy. So let's drill in quickly on these, the 10 kegs, since we've already talked about it with Lopez getting the win. I mean, it was a 28.58, so pretty pedestrian pace. They were jogging in the 70 to 73 range for most of it before finally picking it up in the end. And ultimately, Lopez came in to the last lap in second place with Kipchichir in the lead, who was trying to take it. But Lopez dropped a 54-second final <laughs> 400, <laughs> and that's a pretty big explosion at That'll the end of the race, it. regardless of the pace. And that's what got him the win because Kip Chichir could only manage a 55 while everybody else was happy to get close to 60. And so you had Kip Chichir in second, who we had both picked for the win. Kibet, his teammate from the U.S. Army group, in third. Reed Fisher, fourth. Garrett Heath, fifth. I would have expected Heath to be a little bit higher given the way the race played out. Yeah, it was But strange. he didn't have the kick that, we thought that he was the other have. guys would yep. have. I mean, he was in the mix. Went into the final lap and fourth, kind of right there. But his last lap was a 64. So he got blown out of the water completely. Absolutely. So anyway, but so amazing close there for Lopez off of a pretty slow pace. Any other interesting takeaways from that one? No, just that, again, um, I'm still intrigued by this Kip to cheer racing streak that he's been on. You know, career we find has finally gotten quiet, but Kipchichir hasn't. How much more does he have? How many more Diamond League races is he going to run? How many more U.S. road races is he going to run? How much more does this guy have in the tank? Um, that's crazy to me. It's crazy to me how much that this guy's been able to do. I mean, we picked him for the win because he didn't have any choice but to, and here again he almost pulls it off again, gets second at the U.S. champs again, and it's like... This guy is on a streak. Yeah. If the race had been more honest, if he and Kibet had worked together to make it more honest, I think he could have gotten the win, but he left it for a kick and didn't expect Lopez to have what he did. But hats off to Lopez. Good to see him back on the top of a podium at the U.S. Champs. Then the women's 10K went pretty much as I had predicted, which is that Molly would take it. The reason I had predicted that because I just thought she would think her she needed to play her marathon strength card. And she did. She basically took it from the gun, put the hammer down, and made the ladies follow. Strung them out pretty quickly. Marielle was the only one really kind of close to her while the others were sucking wind. Emily Sisson, I believe, was in third for most of the time. You had Gwen Jorgensen right there trying to hang. But basically, Molly showed once again that she's the class. Yeah, and class of the field with now what? I think her 26th U.S. title. Yep. Yep. It's. I mean, death, death taxes, taxes and Molly Huddle. <laughs> what can you say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the big surprise in this one, I mean, it's good to see Marielle in the top three, but Stephanie Bruce getting on her first I agree with you. U.S. podium. I agree with you. And what what an amazing range that she's now showing. And um, watch out. I mean, I think everybody's got to be in that position where they're now looking at her. Um, we had already been talking about her as a as a, a person to be looking at at the at making the world team in the marathon or the, and the Olympic team in the marathon. But this really does a lot to solidify her, her ability in that area. You know, again, for our listeners, yeah, the 10 K and the marathon are very, very 
divergent and different, but once somebody gets the skill set to be able to keep those paces and hold those paces, it helps their economy later on. And I, I mean, this is good. This is good stuff. And the strength. Yeah. And it just shows that Ben Rosario again. We've mentioned his yes. name a bunch he with keeps, Kellen Taylor. He's getting and others. it done. He's getting it done. It's interesting that Molly, one who had just done Boston, Stephanie got third, who had just done London. So you had essentially two marathoners on the top of the podium here, which yep. show that the strength of the marathon pays off, really at all levels, but definitely in the 10K. Jorgensen ended up seventh. Behind Canujo, Pagano, Emily Sisson. Not really where she would want to be, I would assume. What do you think that means for Gwen Jorgensen? Anything at all? I don't know. I mean, and now it makes me, it does make me worry a little bit, Chris, because we thought that this would be, um, you know, the Olympic triathlon closes with a 10K. So <laughs> you would think she would be better at this. And um, I don't know. I wonder if the lag, the wear of a new program is starting to see. Um, again, nothing to freak out about, nothing to, for people to go running off and saying she's never going to make it, but it is a chink in the armor that we'll probably be watching and wondering what plays out. I, I would assume we will see her at Peachtree. We'll probably see her at some other road races here coming up soon because she's probably in good enough shape that they'll want her to race it out a little bit and see what happens. You know, you made a mention, Chris, about one thing that you would notice when you watch that race is just how tall and how you said big, but the girl's rail thin, but right. just how tall she is and how how that plays into the kind of racing that happens in a ten. You know, the women don't race the way the men do; they really get after it. And Molly did do that; they just stuck it to him, kept rolling, kept kept rocking. But it's it is a little bit interesting how different she looks out there on the track. Now, Stephanie's pretty tall too. Um, and lanky as well, but uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I think I'm holding out any any brash statement about where I think that Gwen Jorgensen is right now, other than just to say, um, I'll be worried if I don't see any races from her this fall. I mean, in this summer. You know what I mean? I think that she's probably needs to be checking on that. Uh, but it doesn't overly concern me. What about you? Well, yeah, my observation was just just that she's so much taller, she has a larger frame than than a typical marathoner and so you know as you look out there she doesn't look like a 10k some of those tiny 10k runners and definitely not some of the tiny kenyan marathon runners and you look at jordan hesse and shalane and and others at the front of a big marathon usually they're low five feet tiny 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 women and not that Gwen is big, she's certainly lean, but it's just she's much taller. And so you're taller, you carry more weight, and that's harder to carry across 26.2 miles. So is that a disadvantage? I'm not sure. You know, I've been saying for a while that I think her best chance to make an Olympic team is in the 10K because that's her background. She doesn't have to to build to the same volume levels she would need to to get to the marathon. And so why not just stay there? And given the state of the U.S., track right now with potentially Molly just refocusing on the marathon it might open doors there where the doors seem to be pretty slammed shut in the marathon with with the very top of that group so anyway I don't know we'll see clearly she's a champion in the mind as we've talked about so she'll figure it out but some growing pains there as a track runner for <laughs> Quinn, Quinn Jorgensen all right let's switch to the 10 uh, sorry to the steeple starting on the women's side Coburn got it done as we expected, but Frerichs was right 
on her heels. As we had talked about, we we sort of thought that her correct strategy would be just to follow Emma, and she did. Emma started to break open the race with about two and a half laps to go, and Courtney was right on her ass and pretty much stayed there. I mean, the, the rubber band stretched a little bit in the final lap. And, and then she, she closed was, it again. And she closed it slightly, but it was a couple meters by the end, a second in time. But she was right there, and clearly in her mind as well, she believes she can beat Emma. She talked about it in her post-race interview as saying, it's not a matter of if I'll beat Emma, it's a matter of when. Right. And so she has all the pieces, and, and she's certainly new in the sport, still relatively new in the Schumacher program. They're both going to Monaco to race in the Diamond League. I think we're going to see them head-to-head in a couple more places in Europe. And you never know. My prediction could could come to fruition that it is true. an American might beat Emma, but we'll see. But Emma, that that was her fifth in a row, her seventh over seventh overall, I believe. And after one year where she was out with a stress fracture, so hats off to her. But everybody's starting to catch up. At least there are two ladies, one now, but one to come that will Correct. be sniffing Correct. the ponytail for many years <laughs> to come. Yeah, I wonder how that makes. I mean, it, I'm sure that crew, those two are are pretty good buddies. It seems like that they are are the most. You know, they're ferocious competitors against each other, but they have huge amounts of respect. So, I wonder if Coburn sort of raised her eyebrows, given all that she's done this year to try to really make this a game changing year, and you can see that it's going that way. But Courtney was so close. So again, I mean, women's women's steeplechasing at the highest levels, and uh, you know, we did sort of predict Chris. That we were, I was pretty sure at least that Courtney would be closer than she was at that race earlier in the year where the barriers were at uneven tights. Number one, because it was her first race. Number two, because there was a big change up that happened in that, and the lack of experience Courtney probably has at international level with those kinds of changes probably messed with her confidence a little bit more than we would have expected. So, pretty amazing um, that turnaround and that response that we saw from her. And um, yeah. I, I think your prediction is uh, it's it's never definitely know. Never know. it'll definitely be interesting to see how it plays out. Especially if something happens like Emma falling over a barrier again. Well, if that you happens, you can now, at this point in time if you make those kinds of mistakes, you're gonna it, it, it will. But I'm just saying what I'm hoping like what that, will happen that may is, be the way it happens. I don't know. I hope it happens the other way. Not that I, I want agree, Emma I to get beat, but yeah, I agree. It will be interesting to see how it plays out. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see quickly this season. I don't. I just don't. Doesn't look like she's going to be able to get back and get back in the saddle. And probably best that she doesn't, if depending on how it all plays out. But she's back um, in Portland, training, getting healthy. She's still running, but yep. clearly dealing with some sort of stress injury in the foot. So sad to see that she won't be competing head to head. But look out, Monaco Diamond League. Apparently, they'll be going to. They'll both be trying to get sub nine there with hot hot pacemaking. And when so. is that, Chris? You might, I you don't. Know? I don't know. Early July. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, yeah, probably early July. Coming soon. Men's steeple. We've already referenced it. I don't think there's a lot to say. Evan Jager was Evan Jager. Hillary Bohr had a solid result for second, and I think will will eventually potent be a potential threat for Jager. I think he's probably still a year or two away from that, depending on how things progress with him. But Evan was dominating. He dropped the hammer about a k to go as well, and just ran away. Ran away from them. You know, I, so he's got seven titles in a row, which is insane. I think the big story for this one is Andy Bear getting on the podium after three fourth place finishes in a row. 
he probably thinks of it as a little bit bittersweet given the fact that there's no team to make <laughs> this time. But yeah. but given his recent change in location, who knows? I think maybe it says for 2020, I can still do this. I yeah. can still get on the podium, which would send him to the Olympics or even the world champs next year. So cool to see him stay with it. And, and I went back and, and watched the, the last K of that race, Chris. And I mean, I, I look, I'm really looking forward to seeing Jaeger run later this year. He looks really good. Really smooth. Really good. As <laughs> good as I've seen him. He looks about as good as he did two years ago when he, when he was right knocking on that eight minute door. And it was, it was pretty spectacular. So I'm excited to see with the low pressure, low key racing, what will happen with him and maybe we'll see some real fireworks out of him this year. I'm hoping. Apparently he's trying for sub eight in Monaco. Good. So they, there could be a historic day on both sides, but correct. Congrats to bear for getting on the podium after many years of being the bridesmaid. All right, let's turn to the 15s. We've already referenced the men's central getting back on top. I don't think we need to drill into that, but I would, I, lo- I would like to talk about Houlihan over Simpson. That, is a huge changing of the guard. We'd already seen it at Prefontaine where Houlihan got the best of her, but we both predicted Simpson would come around, fix her tactics, and dial it in for this. And honestly, <laughs> Houlihan was in her head. Yeah, it I seemed mean, like it, Chris. It's crazy. I watched Jenny's post-race interview, and she said basically that she thought it would be too predictable if she pushed from too far out, so she wanted to make it a kicker's race and, <laughs> just, see, and just see how it played out from there. Uh, I wouldn't use that one again. (laughs) And that's why she went to the back at the beginning. And so it played out the way she wanted it to play out, but she got out kicked. I mean, Houlihan right now with her closing speed is just in a different league, which is crazy. And so the the guard might be changing here for the US 15. Yeah. (laughs) Which I I don't think Jenny expected. Well, if she didn't, she needed, she needs, she... Maybe she didn't expect it. Maybe she was hoping it's hope, but she's going to have to play her tactics out a little bit differently. She's going to need to um, be a better student of her competitors because uh, I don't know that there's anybody that I, anybody that's been following Shelby recently that would have said that that was the plan that should be played out. Right. And it makes me question her strategic mindset, the strategic mindset of her of her race team, her coaches, and whether this was a decision she made on her own or with other people because uh, that was, it, was, it was a poor choice. It was. It, it was, was a absolutely poor a poor choice. And I think the fact that Kate Grace sort of made a move at 300 to go and gapped them a little bit, I think further hurt her chances given the tactics she was playing. And so she got really what she'd planned for, which <laughs> is, you know, which is... Racing, I guess, but unusual for Simpson to make those kinds of mistakes. And it'll be interesting to see how she responds. You know, I still contend that I think Houlihan should focus on the 15 for a bit. Because clearly she's got the closing speed to hang with anybody in the world. She's shown, she's shown good tactics in that she stays out of trouble until the time is right to go. And I think she has a better chance to medal in the 15 than the 5. I, I mean... As good as Shelby Houlihan is, she's still a level below what it's going to take in both the 5 and the 15 at that level. I mean, you've got Laura, Laura Muir running at an incredibly high level. You've got, uh, obviously, um, Dababa, who knows what we'll see from her and where she's at. She seems to be rocking and rolling. And, you know, if you go up to the 5, you've got Ayana and, and others. And so 
I don't know. I I think that I do think Shelby's best chance to run the fat a world class comparable time is in the five. I do think Shelby has both the the strength and the wheels to run really really fast, break the American record in the five thousand. And I would love to see her move in that direction. And I don't think these two things from a training perspective are mutually exclusive. It looks like Shelby is one of those unusual people who has the ability to do the kind of training that it takes to be effective at the 5,000 while not losing that sharpness, that that power, and that close that she's gotten at 15. So we'll see. I think we'll just have still a really young Shelby from an international perspective. Sure. And um, I'm still holding the jury out about that with a five. I still think it may be that she can run the five. It's just the aberrational talent of Ayana that immediately just takes everything out of the picture from a 5,000 perspective. Although she got beat this and, last time too. Yeah, so And Obiri. And Obiri. And I will remind you, she did beat Laura Muir at Prefontaine. Yeah. So that is one international race feather in her cap that she now has, which might build some confidence for the future. And I'm sure she'll be racing Diamond League, so she's going to get a lot of experience this Yeah, I summer. think this year is going to be Shelby's year for really determining what what we're seeing from here, how she matures as an international athlete. This is a crucial year where she needs to take risks, take chances, and uh, and get after it because it, we're getting down to nut-cutting time in next year. So this is like the free year where you get to just get to get just play a little bit and learn and experience without that, that pressure. So um, it's not free in the sense that they have to do all the work and have to get all the races in, and it'll be very challenging, very hard. But it's one with the end goal not being that end result of a world, a world medal, both Olympic or world championship, you know, on the line. We also got to mention Kate Grace, who got on the podium here for third, which really, as we know, is probably the best she could have expected, given that Simpson and Houlihan are definitely in a different class. But it was good to see her make that move at least try to put herself in position to win. She ran out of gas with about 150 to go, but got in third place here, and that's got to give her confidence as she comes back after having a bunch of sort of mediocre race results this spring so far. So kudos to Kay Grace. I'm going to skip the 800. And Chris Bowerman Babes. The Bowerman Babes. They, every single <laughs> one of them made the podium, right, in their event. <laughs> so what can you say? Unbelievable. <laughs> what can you say? Unbelievable. Plus, Evan Jager on the men's side getting on the podium. Ryan Hill on the podium. podium yeah. I mean, basically, Bowerman Track Club and Schumacher. Lopez Lamont on the on the uh, podium. Lopez, that's right. Pretty it. much everyone ended up on the yep. podium, right? Yep. So except for Gwen, yep. I guess. So Schumacher, as we know, getting it done. Switching to the 5K, Houlihan on the women's side. We know got the win in dominating fashion over the last 100. It was like somebody put like a nitrous oxide <laughs> boost power on her back, boost. power <laughs> boost, and she just exploded that last 50. It looked like somebody literally street hit the, racing, hit the fast forward <laughs> button. It was unbelievable kick, and she looked so comfortable going into it. But I want to talk about Chris Schweitzer, Missouri NCAA athlete. You correctly picked her on the podium here. She made this race, starting with four or five laps to go, pushing the pace trying to burn off the kick of some of those kickers in this field. And it got her her third third spot. She probably, she got away. She probably Absolutely. wasn't going to beat Snyder, probably gonna, wasn't going to beat Houlihan. She got her best position, and you got to give her credit as a collegiate athlete of making this race with a bunch of professionals. She was still racing in her Missouri kit, and afterwards she said she'll be making that decision soon on where she's going. But you got to think <laughs> there's a red singlet in her future. 
I mean, if they've got any space on that team, <laughs> then I just would say that's who I would. I, I think they I would mean, be top runner. And if you were, the question will just be whether or not the 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 uh, the invitation is extended. Probably right. not a question of whether she accepts or not. Um, I think that it would be foolish, and uh, I think that the kind of system that she came from from a collegiate level will play well with what's going on in Jerry's system. So we shall see. But I don't think there'll be a lot of. Oh, there'll be a lot of surprise when we hear that announcement. So that's a name to watch. Carissa Schweitzer as she turns pro on the men's 5K side. We've talked about this offline, Steve, but I've got a serious bone to pick with Ryan Hill. He got second in this race, which is what I predicted. Chalima won. We knew Chalima was the class of the field. But I'm just frustrated because Ryan Hill, I think, had a chance to at least put Chalimo on the ropes a little bit more, but he just, to my opinion, played the tactics completely wrong in that he moved himself into sixth or seventh position on the rail and was kind of just sitting there while Chalimo was never lower than second or third, was always at the front. Chalimo made a few moves during the middle of the race to kind of press the pace, test the field. He was, Chalimo was dictating it. He was calling up his teammate, Emmanuel Bohr, to come help him with the pace. He was running the show, and then when it came down to two laps to go, Ryan was still in fifth or sixth. He had to make a big move around the outside. He was running outside of lane two, almost in lane three at one point in the second to last lap in order to move up into second position, and then he never got further than that. His final lap was only two hundredths of a second slower than Chalimo's, but his lap before that was a second faster because he had to make this big move and go around people and use all this energy to get in position, and I just don't understand why if you're Ryan Hill and you want to win this race, you wouldn't have just done like Ferricks did and just got on to Limo's ass and d- did whatever he did just to see what would happen, especially in a year when there's no team on the line. I can understand playing, playing it safe for second in an Olympic year or a World Champs year where you just want to get on the team, but this is a year where it doesn't matter. Try something different. See if you can knock the guy off the top of the podium, and it just frustrated me, and then I watched his post-race interview, and his comment about second, he seemed happy with it. He was like, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> and then somebody asked him, well, what about Chalimo? You know, is there anything you can do? And he's like, no, he just has a pop that I don't have. That was basically his answer. Well, and you're like, what? Like, I, I mean, if I, if I were Jerry watching that interview, I'd be like, get off my team. Like, or, you, I, I guarantee you there was conversations that were had that probably wasn't get off the team, but much more. <laughs> I can only imagine that, that he's lit him up after that because ultimately, and, or maybe that's coming from the top too, that there's this idea, but I just can't imagine anybody, any true competitor that I know wouldn't be looking at the top spot on that and saying, I want it. And ultimately, if you're less than a second behind Chalimo in a big kick race like this, why wouldn't you be thinking you'd be the Olympic gold medalist? And that's my question. Th- these guys should be thinking, because they're in a race with a guy who's the Olympic silver medalist, right. that they have a chance to be an Olympic medalist. And that, to me, would be enough to drive me to make big risks, take chances, and to put myself in a position, not to just sort of bail back. It makes me wonder, is this guy just in it for the paycheck? You know what I mean? Is he, is it, is he in it for the, that this is what he does? Or Because ultimately, when you're that close... You got to have more in there. You know, I'll tell you this. Jenny Simpson's not playing it that way. No. Shelby Houlihan's not playing it that way. You know, this none is of, one of the babes are playing it that way. And let me tell you, Chris, this is one of the things that I truly and I don't think women play it this way. This is again, it goes into my knock against men, American men. Not all of them. Evan Yeager accepted. A few others accepted. 
who just who just play around with the sport rather than doing the very very best they can. They compete against each other instead of competing at a at a world level or l- l- at the next level. And I think the women, both the way they run the race strategically, the way that they position themselves, and the way they look at themselves, it seems to me that American distance running on the women's side is light years ahead. And most of that is attitude. Most of that is approach. Most of that is strategy. And a lot less of it is, oh, the men can't, com- that, uh, the women just believe they can compete. And so therefore they can compete. Now, when you look at the international level, you do see a discrepancy between the East African dominance on the men's side where, and while there is still East African, dom- East African dominance on the women's side, to me there seems to be more of a break-in of other cultures in there who are willing to go for it. And I, but on the men's side, it just seems like everybody's scared. It's the wrong mentality. Everybody's chicken. Everybody's chicken shit, and, and the women aren't, and that's why I think we see the better, the, the better results from them at the international level. I mean, Courtney Ferrex at this point, has few reasons to think she can beat Emma Coburn ever in a race. Ryan Hill, you were there before Chalima was. Wait, what the hell? Like, you beat him in college. They yeah, raced against I mean, each other what, in college. I mean, so I, I also, I don't know, I got a, a subtle between the lines sort of statement from him, which may be completely off base, but I just got it that, well, like he was almost saying with his comment about, well, I can't beat somebody like that. Like, Chalimo's on something. Like it was almost like Chalimo's on something. So why would I be able to beat him? It's like, and if you, even if you believe that, and maybe he does or doesn't, I don't know. But even if you believe that he's on something, and you therefore are disadvantaged, that didn't stop Emma for going after Ruth Jabet. No, nope. or going after the East Africans in the steeple. So I just don't, I just don't get it. And if if that was my teammate watching those interviews, I'd be mad. I'd be like, come on, Ryan. Like Lopez won the ten k against a guy who is more of a 10K specialist. Like, are you kidding me? You're not going to sit there and line up acting like you can win the five? Get out of here, buddy. I agree with you. So anyway, I was just upset about that. And I thought, I think the race would have been more interesting had somebody like him taken some initiative because basically, Chalima was just fucking with those guys. I mean, he was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to win. So I'll tell you what. I Almost every experience I've ever had in Des Moines at a championship race that didn't count for a team the five men's 5000 is the absolute worst race ever i think one <laughs> year somebody won it in like 14 12 or something ridiculous <laughs> and it's like it's like just no I'd better off to go to the bar and start having drinks and talking about all the badass women's races that you just saw because it's not gonna it's not gonna be any fun <laughs> seriously so anyway there's my beef and that's it a good meet. I will say one thing about NBC's coverage. I was I watched about half of it on NBC Gold. I did catch some on Saturday on NBC Live. They did a split screen. Nice. During the commercial when I believe it was the women's steeple going off and they showed it at the same time. They showed the, the race playing out without commentary at the same time as they were showing a commercial on the other side. And I, and I at least appreciated the effort. It wasn't <laughs> ideal. I would rather have commentary throughout the race. And I'm I can't understand why Craig Masback gets Craig Masback gets to be the color guy versus Tim Hutchins on the uh, online feed, who's much better. But thank you, NBC, for giving me the split screen. Thanks, thanks for these paltry yeah, droppings exactly. that you give us. We'll exactly. take them and we'll eat them and we'll be very happy. Maybe we'll get more. Maybe we won't. Who knows? <laughs> so there you go. Some tiny, tiny progress on track and field coverage. 
That's it. We, yeah, we apologize to our listeners as we try to get you excited about our sport. We do. <laughs> we don't have the greatest commentators, but anyway. Anyway, but that that's a wrap on U.S. champs. Now we turn to look at Europe as most everybody is heading over there for more Diamond League. So we'll be updating you on those results as they come. And at this point, we're going to pull Alex in and get going on the interview and book club with him. So get your books out. Let's do this. All right, Alex is in studio with us. Hey, Alex, how are you doing? Hey, Welcome. I'm doing great. Thanks Welcome so much. Welcome to Austin, Texas. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome to be here in person and uh, to see this amazing warehouse and to be up in this uh, you know, eagle's nest here where you record <laughs> your, your podcast. Our studio in air quotes. And he's, and he's fully tacoed. We've, uh, we've we, tacoed him. We baptized him <laughs> in Austin tacos. <laughs> he's fueled and ready. I, I'm ready to go. I may have to leave and go to the bathroom halfway through the, <laughs> yeah. the show. but We may have to give him a gel, too, because he's been on a road trip going to see cool places, talking to people about the book, which is exciting stuff. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been, uh, as I said before, I'm a little tired, but this is what it's all about, you know? It's having a chance to talk to people. Living the dream. (laughs) (laughs) The the, the book tour of sorts dream. The first thing I wanted to talk about today, which we didn't really get into the last episode with you, was I wanted to talk a little bit about the process. Because you started this over 10 years ago, and... As I think about that and all the studies and anecdotes and history you pull into the book, I imagine you with some massive room full of note cards keeping track of little tidbits you wanted to bring in, stories, studies, quotes that you wanted to bring in. So tell us about that. When you began this process, how did you start assembling this information and how did it get assembled? What was your system? Yeah, w- what you described is is how I should have done it. <laughs> um, it yeah, my, my system was not as systematic as I, as I, as I would like. Uh, you know, the truth is, yeah, it's been it was like you know ten years ago that I started building toward this project, and in order to do what I knew was going to be a pretty big project, I was paying the bills along the way by uh, by doing journalism. And so you know, when I want, I, I thought for the book, I want to go see see. Tim Noakes in South Africa and see what that's all about. And uh, I couldn't get anyone to send me to South Africa, but I could convince a magazine that an article about, about uh, Tim Noakes was great. So the, you know, the, deal, the deal there literally was I said, look, I'll fly myself to South Africa if you will you know, pay my expenses while I'm there and give me an excuse to, to interview. So that's an example of, of how I got to South Africa, partially on my own money, but for, for a magazine article. And so a lot of what I wrote was organized that way. And the advantage of that is that I was forced to go through my notes and interviews and consolidate and, and find the good stuff uh, at each stage along the way. And so, you know, th- th- there's, there's the gap between what you should do and what, what you actually mm-hmm. do. In theory, you go and talk to a bunch of people. Every night, you should cons- you know, go through your notes, find the good stuff, write down your impressions. And, and I'm not super good at that, but at least... Having having sub deadlines along the way meant that I I had already transcribed a lot of the interviews and I had already pulled out what I thought was the best stuff and had it in files, and so I didn't have like a central book repository or or, or you know file cards. But I so I I essentially had to go through when I when I started actually writing the book, which was about three years ago now maybe. One one of the things I did is I just sat down and was like, let's go through everything I've written for the last eight years and find and and think about what is interesting and what is not and then so then i collated a big file 
of all the topics I'd covered and then started labeling them, you know, this is maybe interesting, this is gold, uh, this fits into the central governor kind of topic, this fits into, so I started thinking, of, that was my, my sorting process to try and figure out what chapters, because a real hard part was figuring out the structure of the book, and that was just a question of going back for, on, to all the research I'd been doing for various purposes. When did you get to some of the historical elements, like the explorer stuff in the South, South Antarctica and the pieces that wouldn't have come up in your sweat science journalism? Yes. So, I, well, one, th one thing I'll say is that some of that stuff did come up. And a lot, so there are a lot of cases where I would come across something cool in researching an article, and that might end up being one sentence in the article, or it might end up being a paragraph in the article that got cut. But like Frederick Schwatka, the, the explorer who, uh, who lived on basically an all-meat diet while sledding across North America, he was one sentence in an, in an Outside Magazine article five years ago. But he was the, you know, one of the stories that held together part of a chapter in the book. So I kind of had that lead already. But, but yeah, so the, a, lot of the, the, a lot of the sort of current research that I wrote about was stuff that came out of my sweat science reporting. But then the history stuff was the stuff that when I sat down to write the book, uh, you know, I went to the library and, and came home with a, a, a whole bunch of, like, texts, which I then followed the, the, uh, the footnotes to. And, um, and so that was a new research project that just that actually was the most time-consuming part of writing the book because I had to go back and find the history. And I'll tell you one, one story from that. Uh, which was actually maybe the coolest thing. I was trying to trace back the history of lactic acid, right? Like we, it's like the, to to some extent the maybe a great myth, but we we've all heard we've all heard and thought about lactic acid. So Rigo, rigor mortis, yeah, exactly. the great rig. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, right? like, I've been okay, there yeah, way yeah, too yeah, many yeah, times, yeah, yeah, Alex. Yeah. Way too many times. <laughs> some people don't know what I'm talking about with that word. They're, they're talking about rigging. Come like, on, it's rigor mortis. But uh, you know, so who's the first person who connected lactic acid with? with uh, exercise. So I, I went back and, and followed these footnotes from like, oh, you know, someone mentioned it in the 19, you know, uh, 11 Nobel Prize speech or something. And then I found, I traced it back. Basically, there's a story that Jens uh, uh, Jacob Berzelius in Sweden in like 1807 was the first guy to notice that when he hunted stag, like stags who'd been hunted and run to death had more lactic acid in their blood than stags who'd just been held immobilized and, and killed. I'll cut a long story short here, but I spent an entire week hmm. tracking down what ended up being one paragraph in the book. And because it is possible now, almost everything that was published before, not everything, but a huge fraction of what was published before, like 1923, is available online. And you can translate stuff from other languages. So I spent a week reading like Swedish books from 1807 and German, wow. German studies from 1848 and trying to trace the story of of exactly how he made this discovery because it's actually there's a lot of I, I will say the other thing that's sort of humbling is to notice that like 90 percent of the books that i consulted on this were wrong if you follow their their footnotes it turns out that they they were following a footnote from another book which mm -hmm. following a footnote from another book which had a source that was flat out wrong um but anyway that's a long way to answer your question but it was it was really fun researching that and sometimes it took me down some long alleys like and uh, ending up like reading a Swedish book from 1807 using Google Translate, which is extremely painstaking. <laughs> but, but it was, you know, I, I'm, that was the whole point of the book, to be able to follow those threads. 
and to not just kind of say, well, we kind of know this, just to say, look, let's follow all the threads. We follow can. all the way back. Yeah. <clears throat> well, it just, as I was reading it on my second reading, <clears throat> I was appreciating the work that went into it because the first reading, it was sort of just taking it all in. But the second reading, reading, getting into some of the detail that you gave, even on some of the stories, little nuance details about what an announcer said in this moment. It's a little blip <laughs> in the book, maybe a word or two of the detail that must have taken you so much time to get all those little things right, which is just really cool and makes me appreciate the work even more, certainly. Thanks, and I'd like to, I mean, I really appreciate that, and it, I do think those details matter, which is why I want to publicly acknowledge that John Landy set his world mile record in Turku, not Helsinki. Yeah, here that, you go. That's the one flat-out factual error I've found. So far, <laughs> to be he's he's free printing. and clear now. Yeah, I, I, I'm so sorry to the citizens of Turku <laughs> and to, to John Landy. So I, I'm really interested in the process of you going from a journalist for eight years to an author and the balls it took to, to think through that. Is that something when you started as a journalist that you thought you might want to do? Or is that something that you sort of just saw, I, I accumulated all of this, um, you know, all writers want to write a book. We talked about that offline a little bit, but what, how did that transition happen? And, and then what are the differences between being a journalist who's writing copy where somebody's going to cut it out? No, you know, they, the, the decision-making process by an editor in a, in a magazine is much different than the decision-making process that happens with an author in, in, writing a book, I would assume. You have more freedom and more flexibility and more le le leeway with that. So tell yeah. us a little bit about that difference. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and uh, you put your finger on exactly what is the biggest difference from my perspective. The difference between a book and a magazine article isn't how long it is or how it's sold. Or I mean, those are all differences. There are lots of differences. But the fundamental key difference that, that matters to me is the control. Um, so, you know, when I started out, I didn't, I didn't, necessarily I, it was you know it's not like as we said it's, it's always like an idea in the back of the head but I didn't know for sure that I'd have a book to write um, and I actually wrote a couple of kind of quickie books early on in my journalism career where where they were not books in the sense of carrying a, any sort of narrative for, for a long period of time they were basically just collections of, of my newspaper columns kind of stuff uh, they were edited and, and updated mm -hmm. but it wasn't a it was more like an anthology than an actual book so I knew I wanted to write a I guess in order in order to move from the abstract of a book would be interesting to I want to write a book I needed to have the right topic and I finally found that when I encountered Tim Noakes's research um about the central governor and the idea that the, the brains in control and I thought here's an idea that's big enough to sustain a whole book and as as we've discussed it, it, in the end the book isn't about Tim Noakes. It's about <laughs> the, the whole area, and it's 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 much more complex than that. But that that was the trigger that made me think, I have an idea that's big enough to you know to the, the sort of classic put down of a book is that you know that was a fantastic magazine article extended <laughs> to book length, and that's that's what I wanted to avoid. But but back to what to what you said in terms of control, I I mean there's whenever you're writing a book, you think God, I would like to write something shorter that someone else will be responsible for selling. And, and, you know, so by the time I finished the process, and, and this is the same for any other or for most other journalist book authors that I've spoken to, they're like, God, I can't wait to just write some things that are where it's like wrapped up in a week and then you move yeah. on. But anytime in the, 
I'm in the magazine world, and I say this with, with you know, huge respect for the editors I work with, it's still different when you're trying to fit into a vision, like a magazine is a, is a, or even a website is, has a, its own coherent vision, and you have to fit within that, not just fit your space, but your voice and the level that you're writing at and the, you, you, the audience it, it, that you're, you're trying to speak to. In a book, you can just say, well, you know, I don't care if other people aren't interested in this. This is my book, and I'm going to write it <laughs> my way. And maybe that means I'm I'm going to die poor and alone. But I, I'm, I'm going to write it my way, and so that there's a huge satisfaction to that. I think uh, when we, Chris and I were talking about this book before it came out because we were excited about it coming out. Um, I read some sweat science articles, and Chris had read a lot more of them than I had. And he was following you on on Twitter, and I don't tweet or Twitter or twit or um, or any of that stuff. I'm. I I like photos. So anyway, an aside. But I was ner- I didn't I wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as I did because I was just a little concerned it was going to be um I know science I know it's important to this thing that I do for a living, but I I don't know how much real new information has come out that can make me help my athletes at at, at a high level. So I was just like might not be there, but I said this to I said this in our podcast. And I repeated it to you and repeated it many times. I thought your book was one of the best written books I've read about the sport, about sport in general and running, in particular where the points that you had running. And I think Chris thought I was being a little hyperbolic and a little bit more. Uh, I'm glad to hear him say in his second reading that he was pulling the threads out that I read in the first place, which was you were telling stories, and that was your principal modus. And those, well, that was your principal method to getting to concepts written and. Um, it's good that you have the ability to write to both levels. I'm excited to see whatever you write next, even if it is a novel, I'll probably read it because <laughs> that part is what I like the most. I love the way you told those stories and wove them together. It was, it was beautifully done. Thanks. That's you know, really, really nice to hear. And I, I just want to kind of emphasize what you just said about the doubts about do we really learn anything new about, like how much new is there that science t- tells us? And, I, and you know, I, I'm, exa- I'm 100% in agreement with you. Like, so that's you know so here's the discussions i had with my with you know my editor and publisher as we we're presenting this is like i d- i don't want this to be framed as a how to book because which is of course how to books sell you know <laughs> orders of magnitude more than uh huh, did you know books uh, and i you know i do think that there's things in the book that on some level may be helpful to some people in terms of exploring their limits but it's not a how-to book, and I and there's a lot of stuff in there that I could have drawn out more. Like here's the five steps to use motivational self-talk to improve your performance, and I think that stuff is could be useful to people. But I was like, I don't want to put that in there because I don't want to pretend that this is something that it's not. This is about understanding and being curious about the nature of limits and trying to understand what's going on there. And, and yeah, that can that can be used in in practical ways. But it, it's just like the danger in in that is that then you it, you, it, you start. You, kind of trying to amp it up and, and make it into a, a practical guide to hacking your your limits. <laughs> and it's like, it's really, if you want to be, you know, a successful runner, there's a lot more you need to know about, you know, yourself and the history of training than you need to know about the latest, lack, yeah, the latest sport science, what, whatever the science yeah. is. Yeah. 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 And you know, that, that's something that you've also just let Chris and I, and what we do for a living you're letting us continue to do what we do for a living. <laughs> yeah. So we thank you for that because believe me, we've had all of our athletes that have read this book have asked us those practical questions. And although we then we go scrambling, looking around from 
you know, the place of what we can find out there in literature and from other great runners and our own experiences and experiences of the people we coached. But um, we had a lot of listeners whose questions as we asked them to prepare for us, a number of them came down this road of, God damn it, I wish you would have put more practical applicable stuff in. So I'm glad that you're able to, to, to tell folks why that is and why you chose to do that. And it makes perfect sense why. Yeah. And, and you know what? Like, and again, my hope is that reading the book sparks these practical questions and leads to the discussions and, and uh, you know, and, and eventually to insights, but, but not from a position of like, here's the answers and here's the five steps. More like, oh, here's something I need to think about. Let me talk about that with my friends, my coaches, mm-hmm. with, with whoever, and let me think about that. Um, because I think the, the action of, of considering these questions is probably more important than uh, the, the sort of three steps to success. Well, and plus just hearing some of the stories of people pushing their limits in the book makes you realize that you've got a long way to go as individuals. We all have a long way to go as individuals to match what has been done by humans in history in various ways. So, Yeah, the story of uh, the young woman in Costa Rica who ran for the University of Oregon, Rhiannon. uh, Oh, yeah, it's that. I've ne- I have that story haunts me. I I've, I've thought about it in in very different random situations about that. Um, for those who are listening and haven't read that part, it's uh, she a, a woman who had already pushed the limits of what she was capable of and was a very high level athlete. If she ran for the University of Oregon and then six years later moved to Costa Rica, is also continuing to run twice a day and is got her level. I mean, and again, this is one of those funny things. It's two paragraphs at the end of a chapter in your book. And it's, it's just haunting how she basically got caught in a riptide and was pushed out to sea and it took some surfers out. Uh, uh, two surfers came out to try to save her and she was treading water. Was it for 30 minutes or so? They figured that it was, was the ab- about 30 minutes. And her son said afterwards, mommy was carrying me on my head or mommy. I, I was standing on mommy. I was yeah. standing on mommy. And as soon as she pushed her son or, or two to the to the surfers she went under and they got the they got her child and then they couldn't get her and she passed away and it's like okay uh at mile 16 i think i could push a little harder yeah, <laughs> i think i might be able to do just a little bit more than i thought i could do that's that story really haunts me too and, and you know what i would it, in the footnotes there's the link to the story that david epstein wrote in sports illustrated about that which is a full story and oh i have to read that i didn't see i, I, yeah. I would say that's uh, you know, David Epstein has written a lot of brilliant things. Yeah. Uh, that's one of his greatest articles. Well, and, I'm definitely digging that one up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, it's certainly a story that makes you think. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into some details. We didn't get into some of the hard stuff last time. We talked at a little higher level. I wanted to start talking about Marcora and his theories in the, the conscious quitter <laughs> chapter. And, you know, base, the basic premise being that perception of effort is everything and that at some level, if we're choosing to back off, then it's us consciously choosing it because of the perception of effort getting too high. And if we were able to manage our perception of effort better or there are factors that might influence our perception of effort, then we'll be able to get more out of ourselves. One of the questions I had related to that is, how would Marcora explain the differences between individuals? Like, an elite athlete versus somebody like me or the everyday runner. Clearly, an elite athlete has higher VO2 max, perhaps more strength, more natural ability to run 204 for the marathon versus my 245. Greater global volume. So would he say that, well, those athletes have those attributes, which then affects their perception of effort, 
which makes them their you know conscious quitter bar much higher than mine or would he say there are those physical differences and and but the perception of effort question happens more on the individual level so which you know which is it what would how would he explain those differences so first of all, I think you did a great sum up of what that chapter is about. That's exactly how, how I would explain it uh, in terms of the, the, the question of whether things can affect your perception of effort. Um, in terms of what Mark Coro would say, I should be careful putting words in his, in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. but, he, he may come to get you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I'm like, yeah, as, as I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm going to see him tomorrow at a conference. In, Maybe in, I should in say, Canada. what would his theory <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. surmise about that? So... My answer to all questions is always, yeah, both. Whatever you just said, both. And, and that, it applies here, too. So I think if I've understood your cor- question correctly. So um, in general, let, let's say, you know, you've got two twins and, and one of them has, or I don't know, they don't have twins. You've got two people and one of them is has fitter than others. Has, the other one has higher, like a better engine. Um, it's going to be easier for the fitter guy, to, fitter person to sustain uh, you know, seven minute mile pace. And so running seven minute miles is going to feel like five out of 10 for that guy. And it's going to feel like six out of 10 for the other guy. And so, um, the, 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 the fitter guy doesn't have to be tougher to, to win the race. He's just, they can be totally equally, uh, susceptible or equally responsive to what their perception of effort is telling them. Um, so, the perception of effort reflects all these physical parameters. It incorporates, it's not just about what's going on in your head. It, it's a function of your, your physical fitness. However, um, in practice, top athletes are able to tolerate higher levels of perception of effort. And the thing is, perception of effort is this fuzzy concept, right? Like it's, it's uh, how, how hard does this feel on a scale of one to 10? I say seven. Well, what's, what does seven to me mean versus seven to someone else? So but so it's a little hard to talk about or to, to be sure what we're talking about. But basically, there is evidence. Uh, there was a study at the Australian Institute of Sport that, on cyclists that, that uh, uh, Mark Cora collaborated with that, where they looked for some of the mental differences, the differences in brain endurance in, in terms of being able to handle mental fatigue and keep pushing. And they did find that uh, the elite athletes were better able to... to keep pushing through cognitive fatigue than the other than the the, the very good r- amateurs so I, I guess let me try and um sum up what i'm saying which is that you you, you visit the the perception saying perception of effort is everything means that it is incorporating all the physical stuff but it's also incorporating mental stuff and when you train you're getting better at both of them so y- both of those are moving together I think, and so when when you have two athletes who are equally good, we don't really know. One of them may have better physical tools, but 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 not as good mental tools, and the other vice versa. I don't, I'm not sure if I answered your question. Is that no? I think so. I think, but from a technical standpoint, would Marcura say, "Look, it's all perception of effort, and the inputs to that are physical attributes as well as mental ability, however you want to define that." Versus saying, "Look, yeah, there's certainly a physical." starting point and some people are at a higher point than others but then perception of effort becomes the thing that matters after that he, he would say it's all perception of effort okay that, that, that the, the difference the, yeah that that perception of effort includes all the physical stuff and and it, it's baked in and and he 
to there's some more technical stuff that I didn't get into in the book about what perception of effort really is. Is it is it kind of like a big dial in your head that responds to all the uh, signals coming in from the from the body, like your heart rate, your your breathing rate, your lactic bleed, and so on? That's what intuitively that's what it feels like to me. He's he actually Marcora argues that it's not that perception of effort is ju- is is an outgoing measure. It's a measure of how hard you how the signals your brain is sending to your muscles. Um, your brain keeps track of that and how and and that's how it calculates perception of effort. So that when you get tired, your muscles you know or, or yeah when you get tired, your muscles are working less efficiently. So your brain has to send a bigger signal, and so it interprets that as a higher level of effort. That's a debate that gets really. Uh, <laughs> it's almost like an evolutionary debate, isn't it? I mean, in essence, it's like if it's an output, then we've always been doing that over time for so long that now, uh, evolutionarily as a species, right? Like how hard, how long charter can I go to get that roebuck to get into lactic acid so that I can take him down with my with my <laughs> rock across the head because I'm not going to be able to run him down in the first hundred meter sprint. So. It's interesting to think of that. We always think about these experiences that we have from a current modern scientific point of view. It sounds like Marcora, Marcora is also saying, well, we are, we're, it's a bigger picture. We're global. We, there are all these other pieces that might come in. And you can say psychology is a function of, of cognitive science or, 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 or physiology or, or chemistry. But really, there's other... He does say that, but there's also other cultural things going on. Maybe not cultural, but scientific things anyway that's yeah i mean certainly like you can you can think back to well there's the whole evolutionary discussion as to why we are like this and and you can think of lots of good reasons that we should uh that it should start feeling hard if (laughs) if you're wasting a bunch of energy yep and uh, you know (laughs) like yeah you should stop running around because and you should not run faster than this because like you said it's not optimal for the hunting or or whatever the Mm -hmm. case may be It's, it's obviously it's hard to to uh we can't do tests on those uh, Neanderthals yeah, yeah. or those are early early humans. <laughs> but we yeah we can look we can and we can we can measure now and try and figure out what exactly perception of effort is. But in a sense, that's a that's a good scientific debate. Uh, but from our perspective, what matters is is what Chris said, which is that if if you buy into Marcora's theory, the perception of effort is everything. How, you know how you it, it, and that bakes in your fitness. It bakes in your natural abilities and everything like that but it puts me on the same playing field with galen rupp basically that's right (laughs) you know if you were willing at the very base level yeah yeah, if you were willing to try harder you could beat galen despite his vo2 max of a billion (laughs) or whatever the problem is there's there's a ceiling as to how hard any any well you just got to get him on hayward field and you got to get a bunch of fires going and run at 10,000 meters, and he'll put his mask on, and that shit won't work, and you'll be able to run his ass down, Chris. Or, 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 Gale Force wins. Or Gale Force wins. Really cold temperatures. He'll, he'll drop out. We had a whole I, lot of people. I, I, we had, I, a, we lot had of, a bunch of people beat him. We coached a lot of people who whipped his ass. That's right. <laughs> hey, you start, if you start, that's a, that's a head-to-head matchup. So yeah, that's right. exactly. <laughs> they were all in the same starting line. <laughs> we should have played that out. We should have definitely you. See? <laughs> See? <laughs> Obviously, their perception, their their ability to tolerate high effort from a meteorological perspective was extremely high. <laughs> so there you go. It just proves Marcor's point. I mean, speaking of that, we were going to ask you. I mean, did, I bet you had a heyday watching Boston this year because you think about Desi's result. It plays right into what you're talking about here, which is that she felt bad, so she thought I'm going to drop out, but decided 
I might as well help some people before I do that to taking her mind off of herself and her own struggles and effort and so forth. And then suddenly she's leading, not leading the race, but about to lead the race. And then it's like, oh, well, I might as well finish this thing. I mean, it plays perfectly I've been training into, in Detroit for last It plays perfectly into years. this theory, doesn't it? I, I, th- I think it does. And, if, you know, it's, it's obviously y- you can find a, a, a race to support any you know human beings were excellent at telling retrospective stories of, uh, that, that yeah. fit with our ideas but but yeah i watched that race and, I, and and yeah especially when she mentioned that story about dropping back to help shalane it's like it makes perfect sense and there, there's like there's been some neat work on like attentional focus and showing that if you're thinking about how do i feel how do i feel you know being if, if if you're in a race and you're self-monitoring and saying, how, how do I feel? The answer is always crappy, right? Like <laughs> you never feel good in the middle of a marathon, but if you're thinking about something else entirely, you, you, you kind of stop, you're, you're no longer focusing on how crappy you feel. And, and so there's all sorts of reasons that, that, uh, you know, changing your focus can change your perception of effort. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so, uh, it, and, and just the whole idea of being willing to push, uh, independent of of how the you know the current race is going and how your split is i mean there's that whole discussion i don't know if you saw that article about you know women versus men dropout yep. dropout yep. rates and and sort of the the different the the theory or the ideas that you know what what happens when you're in a race and you fall off pace or you look down and you're like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hit my goal time today there's so many different ways to respond to that and and different you know what you're thinking before, how you've prepared for the race is going to affect whether you then proceed to drop out or whether you keep going or whether you kind of just cruise it in. And I, like, I know thinking during a race is never, you know, logic doesn't quite work. Math doesn't quite work, at least for me in the race. And there's been so many, so many times for me when I've been in two thirds through or halfway through a race, I look at my watch and I'm like, oh man, I, you know, or let's say two thirds of the way through the race. And I realize I'm not going to get anywhere near my goal time today. And it's like, oh, well, just keep trying. Don't give up. But Really, I'm get, I'm just kind of cruising, and then I get to like seven eighths of the way through the race, and I look at my watch, and I'm like, oh man, I can sit, still set a PB if I finish, <laughs> like, and I still don't know like the, the 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 mental warp of math not working, but it's like, I I curse those races, and I'm like, why did I let up in the third quarter because I thought I was like it was there was too much of a disconnect between my goals, and so that's that's a, that's an example of poor like mental planning, poor resilience, and and not being able to to adjust to changing conditions well give your best effort is oh is such a cliche but yet those people who train this is one of the the foundational principles of the athletes that i coach is i demand at every moment on every rep that they do their best to give their best effort because i know there's going to be and i don't do it because they're going to get the best physiological response out of themselves out of that workout I do it because they're going to bail they're they're going to bail on themselves and if they don't bail on themselves today I might delay the bail later and there might be an opportunity that they will see through a few of those things and then you know as a coach too one of the things you try to do is get in your athletes faces as much as you can in a race if you can see them they might they might check that box off a little bit differently but um I do have one more question before you jump off the Marcora thing is do you still have fla- do you have flashbacks 
all those TV, all those uh, video experiences you had, <laughs> looking at those, playing those video <laughs> games, playing those games. You had many, many hours of games you played that that actually led to damn near naught. So it, how do you how do you feel about all that now? How, what's your experience of that now? It, it, it's it's faded away, but it is interesting. So anyone who played Tetris in the nineties. Well, remember that feeling of like you're you're sitting in class or you're walking down the street and you're seeing these blocks <laughs> uh, cascading sure. in front of your face. Yeah. For me, like, it's Pac-Man. I still I'll oh, go. Yeah, and I and I definitely I hundred percent had that when I was doing so that just for context that these these brain training exercises that that Mark uh, Mark has experimented with are based, there's th- there were three that I did. One was like a bunch of arrows flash on the screen and you have to ignore four of them and pay attention to one. Another was a letter, a sequence of letters flash on the on the screen, and you have to pay attention to. Can't remember what color one of them is or something. And the other one was shapes, and you have to respond to like whether it's a triangle or a square or something like that. And I would just be walking around seeing these shapes and arrows and letters. It was <laughs> it was a nightmare. But for, fortunately, I, I'm 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 blessed with the you know the short term memory of a, of a of a flea that kind of faded away after a while. So it's not like my my dad when he hears helicopters and he ducks, right? You don't, you don't <laughs> yeah, have yeah. that experience. <laughs> well, I, I I don't know. I haven't I, I haven't seen those stupid arrows in a while. So <laughs> yeah, I, I I wouldn't want to try it. You haven't run too many hard. You ran a five k. You know, maybe you need to go back to the marathon and it'll all come back. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. If if you want, my, my PTSD isn't about the brain training. It's about the marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Just do more long runs. Alex, it, it, it and, and surface-specific is our suggestion. Surface-specific is crucial. You, you, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> you just tra- if you just trained in Austin, we'd take care of you. <laughs> so let's go into some of the limits chapters. I think that second part of the book is where the most practical stuff, if people want to draw practical advice out of this well, book. Okay, let, me, let me just jump in before you say that. I will say I think the most practical stuff is in the third part of the book, the final chapter on belief, talking about things like motivational self-talk. Fair enough. But to just just as a as, a, as an aside, the, the the deep the deep practicality is there, but there's lots of practical <laughs> stuff in 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 in, in uh, Fair enough. the middle section. Okay. Fair enough. The so I wanted to break down a few of these. One of these was is the oxygen, the breathing pieces, the stuff on free divers and what they're doing and. Even the anecdote you told on our last podcast with you about basically you having 2x ability to hold your breath than you really think you do is just really fascinating. But I, I've been on a little bit of a breathing journey myself. Having I went to a yoga conference one time and I was actually leading some running <laughs> sessions, ironically, at a yoga conference. And I had free access to the conference, so I thought I'm going to go to some of these workshops and see what happens. And I went to this pranayama class, which is basically a form of yoga that focuses heavily on breathing, and there's different methods that they use to achieve certain outcomes. And in this 45-minute to an hour workshop, I was absolutely, mine was blown on some of the exercises that we did and, and the response in my body at doing certain things. And it made me think that there has to be some practical applications in the running world, but this is not something we ever talk about. We don't talk about breathing, but you might get into it a little bit in terms of your cadence of breath and how that syncs with your foot strikes and that stuff you might see. But, but I've never seen anything on breathing exercises before race, before training. You know, there's, there's like the Wim Hof method and other methods that are being used by people to sort of use breathing as a tool 
to center yourself and so forth. But I haven't seen a lot on the practical application of some of those methods for running before a race, before a workout, whatever it may be. Is there anything in your research that would say what we've learned and, and freedivers, they'll hyperventilate and they'll do some crazy stuff before they go down. Is there anything in what you learned from that that you say would, might say is applicable to a runner? So there is a bunch of literature on something called inspiratory muscle training, which is you might have seen there's a company called Power Breathe. It, it, you know, it looks like you're playing a kazoo or something like that. And you, basically you're, you're inhaling against resistance. And what it does is it um, strengthens your, your breathing muscles. And there's been research for about a decade, maybe, well, maybe two decades now. It's, it's well understood in clinical patients who have breathing problems. Um, and, and so the question is, do your breathing muscles get tired? If you get better at breathing, do you get better at endurance performance? And there have been a couple dozen studies at least. And the answer is probably maybe there's some benefit for some people. So in in you know which 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 is better than most things right, right. like I, I better than maybe. stretching <laughs> that they say about stretching yeah, right yeah yeah I, I, probably yeah. maybe for some yeah yes. that that's that's hey that's positive for me this is this is like a glowing recommendation um, it, so, so so there are some sports like swimming where breathing is constrained you can't breathe when you're underwater so you have to sync your breathing with your with your stroke uh, which makes it a little harder to breathe you know you have to breathe a little more forcefully when you when you're out and stuff like that and you maybe have to hold your breath for longer periods of time uh where respiratory muscles do fatigue uh it's it's a little more obvious that you get get some benefit there by getting your muscles respiratory muscles stronger but there's also and this research gets a, a little complicated so i I'm, if i sound a little hazy on it it's because i am um but different people are limited in different ways when they're breathing but in terms of whether they're actually maxing out their their respiratory muscles and you can do breathing tests that 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 sort of tell you whether you're limited by the size of your rib cage or by the strength of your muscles um and so there's a little bit of evidence that that doing these sorts of breathing exercises which basically involves like inhaling as hard as you can 20 times once a day or something like that um that it might have a benefit so that's some that's one that's one thing to say, um, and the you know from there you can say okay well yeah breathing does matter so that's a, that's a really direct and kind of mechanistic link, and I can say I, I know I I struggled with stitch problems when I was competing at you know like five k or ten k races, and I think for me uh, in in one of these hand waving ways I would say that. I, because I don't have like proof, but my my sense is that was because I would, especially when I was really nervous in big races or in cold weather, I would start breathing too shallowly, and if I was able to become more conscious of my breathing and to, and uh, take deeper breaths with from deeper in my in my lungs rather than the shallow breaths, I I could avoid getting the stitch or I could relieve the stitch, and so I I feel like if I had worked on my breathing, become better at breathing in the way singers do like there's there's a, a very good runner in in victoria a master's runner who's also an opera singer who, d who teaches clinics on this stuff and i think it's like part of me the the very skeptical part of me is like show me any evidence that that's helpful but the other part of me is i should have done that when i was competing because you know i think i think there's these connections but i don't think we have 
I don't think we really know. And then there's the, there's you know you can step step up a level to the kind of things that you're talking about that or some of the things that that you're mentioning and the idea of you know getting in the right space, getting yourself, getting your you know in terms of the your mental in it. it it, it maybe it's physiological, but also your mental space. Like breathing is obviously a very key part of so a lot of meditation practices, and, and it it is for a reason. And so maybe you don't have to go into a trance before a race, but but using controlled breathing or breathing exercises as a way to prepare yourself to race, I can imagine would be could be useful for some people. But I don't like I I don't know about it. I've had multiple experiences with athletes that get side stitch issues and I was searching and wandering all over the web for answers to it. And I found out something that I think we all probably, as soon as I say it, everybody knows it. And I know you already know it, but like I just told that I found out that the diaphragm is a muscle and the thing that cramps and stitches is the diaphragm. And what the diaphragm does is make sure that the lungs do the things that they're supposed to do. So your opera singer is incredibly proficient at controlling their diaphragm. And so I would, I had a few athletes that spent, and it was 10K athletes primarily, and, and they would get, something was happening where they could not control their breathing. And all we did was the next cycle was just, the next whole training cycle, we just sat and did lay down breathing exercises to start, because it's really hard to breathe when you're laying down. We would uh, close their nose. You know, I had, there was a protocols in, at some places I found that were just like, let's try these things. It was Devin Munson. He never, he never had another side stitch issue. And he now is a collegiate coach and he's asked me multiple times, where did you get all those things? What's all that practical application? I'm like, I don't know. I can, I, I have written notes of what I said for you to do, but I don't, I don't have any way for you to prove that it works except that you can practically say it did work. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like, I do think there's something to that prana, that, that, that method of breathing that it also hits other parts of our neurochemistry too that's probably critical in principle and, and some of that stuff too because i know that all things yoga are indian and all things indian have more than practical application <laughs> <laughs> nearly all things indian have more than pra- more than practical they're our oldest in, in, our oldest seers right in, in, including curry correct exactly yeah. <laughs> that, that can be a mr you, you meet for, god you meet god after for a, sure after a, a good curry so we talked oxygen let's talk heat for a second is that I think there's also some really interesting practical elements in there. I was thinking about having a 7-Eleven Slurpee before my races <laughs> after reading about the Australian <laughs> Olympic team having their... their just s- not a big gulp. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> not a big gulp. But also, you know, I was in this year before Boston, I gave a bunch of my athletes a sort of a two-week protocol of over-layering. And it already started getting warm here, but... You know, we were probably in the mid-60s, low-70s for a lot of our runs at that time. So they were over-layering and for a couple of weeks to try to acclimate before Boston. And ultimately, we had, you know, the <laughs> the crazy triple threat of wind, cold, and rain. But <laughs> so that was all for naught. But if there's a practical guide to heat acclimation for something like a Boston, which is, can be hot, what does that look like? So there's, there's a, there are a bunch of different ways to think about it. but there's increasing interest in passive heat acclimation. Now, there are some things that work really well for professional athletes that then when you apply them in real life, you're like, I can't train for a marathon and spend 40 minutes in the sauna every day. Like, that's, that's not going to happen. That said, it's, it's one of the nice things. So there's, there's been some studies on 
couple of forms of passive heat acclimation, one of, one of which is sitting in, just sitting in a hot room, a very hot room, another of which is sitting in a hot bath, and another of which is sit, I mean, sitting in a sauna, which is I guess, another version of a really hot room. And the nice thing is that it doesn't screw up your training. You're not like, well, I ran like 14-minute miles today because I was wearing a garbage bag and, and three, <laughs> three snowsuits. Um, so uh, the negative thing is, 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 is the time involved. But, but, you know, one way to think of it is let's say you're doing a run in, you know, it's mid-60s. If it's a decent run, by the end, you're pretty warm. You're not, you haven't been, like, you're not dying of, of sweat loss, but you're warm. At that point, you run a warm bath, uh, and you get in, and you sit in it for, I don't know, 20 minutes, something like that. At home, it's hard to do. You might have to keep running a little hot water partway through or whatever. And that, the goal is basically, to, to step back, to heat acclimate, you want to get your core temperature up to, um, well, to 38.5 degrees Celsius, which is, I think, about 100, I think it's about 100 degrees. Ballpark 100, 102, something like hot that. Tub. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, 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 hot tub! Time to go to the hot tub! So you get in the hot tub, <laughs> and you, and your, your you want to keep your core temperature there for 30, 40 minutes, something like that. And... Uh, I don't know. I, so I, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't think, I, I, I don't want to recommend that anyone start taking hot baths every day, <laughs> but put it this way. Let's say it, it's, it's something you can add to the mix because there are different ways of getting your core temperature up for that period of time. And one of them is running in the heat. And I think there's benefits to running in the heat or, or over layering and, and running because part of heat acclimation, it, it does different things. It's going to increase your plasma volume. It's going to change your sweat response. It's also going to get you comfortable with feeling really hot and uncomfortable and unhappy and continuing. So you, part of it is the, the per- heat perception. And there have been studies that measure this too, about you know, how does your heat perception change, not just your physiological responses. And that's important. So I, you know, this stuff matters if you're not heat, heat acclimated and you're going to be racing in, in hot conditions. And there are different ways to do it. So you can be creative with what works for you in terms of hopping in the hot tub after a workout or, or even the sauna. Um, and also doing some runs that, that are designed to, to be, to make you hot. The, the overlayering stuff is challenging. Like the studies that have been done with overlayering, there's one that came out of Oregon, uh, just this year, I think where they had, it was like, they were wearing five layers and with like zipped up and mittens and everything. And then they showed that it worked. It did get the core temperatures <laughs> up sufficiently, but that's pretty extreme, but it was like, Oh, that's not like putting on a hat and, and you know. Wearing a long we, sleeve. Yeah, yeah. We're wearing a long sleeve rather than a short sleeve. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe it would have worked with, with less, and especially if it's, if it's already pretty warm. Like, hey, to, to, to me, 60s is pretty warm. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, then, uh, then, you know, maybe a couple layers is, is, is going to do the job. But I don't know. So hopefully that, that gives But either way, if you do it, the layering method or through the sauna hot bath method, it's, is it still a two-week window? There are protocols as short as five days that have been shown to have effects, but you'll okay. get more. You, you get a little more if you go to up to about once you get to two weeks, ten to fourteen days is the sort of standard protocol. Got it. it you're 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 saturated then. You don't need to do it longer than that. You can get. There's actually been some super minimal protocols of like as as few as like two or three heat bouts over the course of five days, which have 
had demonstrated results. So it's like, it's a sliding scale. You're going to, if you do some, you're going to get some benefits. And if you do more, you're going to get more. But yeah, because, because in a lot of cases, more than a week, it, it, you're, you're sacrificing something in the quality of your training too. If, if you're, if you're really going, going to town with, with uh, being in the heat for too long. One of my favorite chapters, uh, as Chris is calling them, the practical chapters that you're, you're denying the practicality <laughs> of these. Uh, no, not I'm, necessarily, I'm, I'm just I'm enhancing not, the, just the practicality enhancing of the, the, the right. last chapter. Um, <laughs> is the pain chapter, mostly because Jens Voigt, I've been a huge Jens Voigt fan my whole life, and you're, the, you kind of frame that entire chapter around that story of his doing the hour competition because there were so many other ancillary stories around that story, like how much cocaine cyclists would do or how much things that were like seven times stronger than morphine. I think it was three times stronger than morphine. There were so many great stories in there that I can see why you framed it that way. But since our listeners are all runners um, and the disciplines in the sport run from 100 meters to 100 miles currently as professionals and beyond that for the crazy ultra people. runners who are crazy, right? Um, and you do have a few examples in there. Well, I think it's the next chapter where you talk about the Tour de, Tour Tour de Giants or Tour de... What do you say? Uh, uh, well, I'm not French. I can't say it. There's Tour de Giants. There's UTMB. Yeah, or UTMB. Maybe it was Tour de Giants that I... Was Tour de Giants is what you did because yeah, it's yeah. the 205-mile version, yeah, which yeah. is crazy. And those were, those, that, that was also super interesting. Um, but thinking about that concept of pain and the different types of pain, what, we, what I would call... It's probably not going to fall into scientific buckets, but more along the lines of practicality, you being a distance runner yourself, having run distances from 800 up um, to the marathon... Uh, what what do you think those fact those pain factors like and that perception of pain since we talked about perceived effort how when you think about that and I'm not asking you to do it from a coaching perspective or a practicality perspective per se, per se but just more sort of an anecdotal state like each one of these things we know that the pain of an 800 meter dash is so much different than the pain of um, a 10,000 meter. Um, Chris has heard me say this a million times. I think the 800, the 5,000, and the marathon are sort of sister races because they require a very, very similar level of pain management. Just duration is one of the key factors that gets removed. And they, they fall very similarly. If you stretch an 800-meter dash out to a marathon, it kind of sits very similarly. When you take a 5K, the 5K and the marathon especially correlate, in my opinion, not strictly, but generally. So I'm just curious your thoughts on this idea of pain, and since you wrote an entire chapter more on a cycling focus, I'd like to get your perspective of a little bit, just maybe an anecdote or two about it from a running perspective. Yeah, so as soon as you say pain and running, my, my, my mind moves to 800 oh, meters. All of us. Yeah, yeah like the, the, there's no pain like the 800-meter pain. No. <laughs> um, it, it's interesting. Like, so but is that a duration thing? You know what I mean? Is that, is that why that pain is so different? Or is it... The muscular structure, the way the rigor mortis hits, the way all those things happen, the way the race plays out, the stress that happens in that race because you're under the gun so quickly. And yeah, I I think so. I think for the 800 meter, the that that pain you can link to how much lactate is in your blood. Now we all grew up saying the lactic acid burns, it burns so bad. And now scientists would say, well, it's it's no, it's not lactic acid, it's lactate, and you know the pH is changing, but we don't know what exactly is causing the pain signals, whatever. Like it, so we don't know the cause, but we know that it correlates with the more lactate you've got, which, and lactate peaks, lactate is, is highest in uh, efforts between one and 10 minutes, and it's highest right around two minutes, which is so for 800 meters. So 
that's a specific kind of pain that to me is different in in nature from the pain I feel in a 10k. Um, in a now in a in a 1500 you still get a fair amount of lactate. In a 10k to me in a women's 1500 in men's 1500 all they do is grab each other's dicks and wait around till 100 <laughs> meters to go. So it doesn't really matter. But anyway, I'm just gonna, I just had to put that out there. Well, y- you could argue that if the men just jog for a couple laps, they're really just running an 800. So probably, it's probably more painful. <laughs> so maybe it is. Yeah, yeah. And if you have Matt Centrowitz in it, he's going to murder you too. So right, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah. Listen, there's there's a specific kind of pain that anyone who has run middle distance recognizes and that I don't know how true this is, but that to me I think is qualitatively different than in a 10K where it's like this dull kind of, it's, it's, to me it's, a 10K is more effort dominated and in theory, so it's unpleasant that you really want to stop, but it's not because there's this sharp pain. Now, in, the, in theory, the marathon should be even more on that spectrum. Of course, when I ran a marathon, I had... Uh, you know, my legs were were smashed up, so I was ha- had a lot of muscle damage, and it was painful. So there's these, that's that's another example of the kind of pain you can experience running, which is muscle damage. And th- there, I'm sure there are lots of different ways of experiencing pain, and pr- they're probably different from runner to runner. Like I know friends who've run marathons who just don't understand what I'm talking about when I say how how bad my quads were in in that marathon. So w- we're all different, but I think I I kind of separate that that lactate linked pain from the other forms of like pounding pain and the sort of just unpleasantness of being you know right over your <laughs> threshold for a long period of time where you're uh, yeah where it's sort of sustained it is hard to know like if you could divide the pain of an 800 and say instead of two minutes we're going to spread it out equally over an hour <laughs> would it, but, but but not 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 at the same intensity we're going right. to you know so if it's if yep. it's what is it? If it's thirty times longer, we're going to make it thirty, 30 times, times less, less intense. Right? Is that what a half marathon feels like, or is it something different? I, right. I, I don't really know the answer. Like, uh, to me, it feels like the total total sum of pain you experience in an eight hundred is actually greater than what you experience <laughs> in a ten k. But 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 I don't know if that's true. I don't know if yeah. that's true, right? Like, <laughs> but but if uh, hey, since, since this is you know practical practical Thursday, <laughs> l- 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 let me just make the the point that. Uh, we get better at, at dealing with pain and, mm. and, and the exposure is where it's at. And, and, and that's part of what training is. And that's why some, some workouts have to hurt aside from the physiology. You just have to, you have to feel it. And, and there's, and this is not just like my gut feeling. This is what the, the studies show that we, y- y- you get better. And, and, and the, the, the sort of second point on that is that you don't learn to deal with pain once and then you're set for life the studies that follow athletes through a season they find that pain pain tolerance to something totally unrelated to their actual task so pain assessed with like a blood pressure cuff squeezing your arm it it rises and falls so it it peaks when you're peaking and it's lowest during it during the off season so it's something you have to you have to build each time you're building towards a race makes me think of all the the women that i've coached who have say to me before when they get pregnant i'm going to be much better runner after i 
have pregnancy, which I, I used to always think that that was the case. But as I've coached more and more women who have gone through that, I'm like, no, it's all the residual pain and suffering, lack of sleep and things that happen after you had it. But yeah, you have this amazing, incredibly painful experience of having a child, but then you have to raise that child and be primarily responsible, which creates a whole bunch of other things. It's like, it's not just the one thing. It's that now your level of resilience is so much greater and your ability to handle so many other variables is, is, is more important than that. Uh, that one moment. Correct. Which is not one moment, believe me. I, I, not that I've had a child, but I, I'm sure that every woman right now would be like, it is not one moment, my friend. <laughs> Nine months of moments. Yeah. And then be more. And then hours. And then more. Yeah. <laughs> so let's turn to some listener questions for you, Alex. The first one is is fairly direct, but I'm curious to see your response. She says, the book alludes to the conclusion that the mind is the ultimate limit to performance. I read the whole book on the edge of my seat waiting for him to say it, but he never did. I think he wants readers to walk through that door themselves. I can understand that, as maybe by forcing us to draw our own conclusion, a greater sense of belief is established. Is that what you were trying to do? That's a great question. Uh, and, and I haven't really thought about the fact that I never said it directly, but I think my, my initial thought on that is that I'm really, really wary of oversimplifying things, of, uh, of coming across as a, as a like, really simple, uplifting self-help book. So, for instance, uh, on the back of the book, in the, 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 the first thing it says in describing the book is, limits are an illusion, in big letters. And so my editor emailed me and said, hey, look, here's what we're thinking for the back of the book. Um, I understand you're going to be uncomfortable with it. <laughs> do, you want, do you want me to get rid of it? And, and I said, do you think it's going to sell more copies? <laughs> but I had to think really carefully about it. And in the, the event, I, 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 said, I ended up saying, look, I'm going to let you guys do the book cover. I don't want to overthink it. But I, I am really sensitive about not wanting to take what is a complex area and, and boil it down too much. Now, what she said is actually a really interesting thing because at a certain point so sorry to answer this in a roundabout way but there's there's a sensitivity like when i write articles about complex science and then someone then an editor will slap a headline on it and and i used to get really kind of uh, upset about it because that i think that 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 headline makes me look stupid because it's such an oversimplified gloss on the headline on the on the topic that i've been at pains not to oversimplify (laughs) And after a while, I, I eventually thought more about it, and I, and I realized, it's like, why am I so pissed off by this? Well, it's because they just came out and said what, what I was actually trying to say without saying it. <laughs> and I was like, well, if that's what I was trying to say, then maybe I should not be so shy about it. Like, if that's the point I was trying to make, then what's the point of me, like, being, well, it's very complicated, blah, 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 and hope that at the end they come to that conclusion themselves. So, unfortunately, I guess I kind of did that in the book. But, I, but Well, so, did you? I mean, I think yeah. at some level... I don't I don't think that's what you were saying. I do think there was a lot where you were trying to let the reader make their own conclusions and I appreciate that as a curious person. But at the same time, I'm not sure that's where you stand, that it's all in the mind. I think you I think you recognize that as you said before, it's both. It's the body and the mind. Yeah. And so I think that may be an oversimplification of what you would actually believe. Thank you. Yeah, and that I that, that that's a fair point, but but if you had to gloss what what the overriding message of the book is it's that yeah the the, the mind plays a big role but you know in, ultimately uh, 
So the message of my book, yeah, isn't it that it's all in your head? It's, it's that it's more in your, he- in your head than you probably realized. At least that's the message I take away from myself. It's more in my, in my head than I, than I realized when I was competing seriously. So yeah, I'll take that. But I think, I think it's also worth saying that I was probably, that I may have been a little bit gun shy about just coming out and saying what I thought. Um, and if so, you know, I'll say it right now. It's maybe it's maybe not all in your head, but it's more in your head than than you might think. So. <laughs> well, that is a good segue to this next question, which is kind of the yang to that question. If it was the yin, it's, and this listener says, "I'm surprised at the statement at the end of the chapter on belief." In other words, if he's such an addic- advocate for science, how does he square with needing to believe that there's more in there? Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> wow, man, these guys are uh, dropping the gloves. Going dropping right, the gloves. Going okay. right at you. Okay. Um, <laughs> so here, here's what. So I've been giving a bunch of talks lately uh, about the, the the ideas in the book, and and one of the things I say is like I'm going to talk a little bit about the role of belief, and I just want to say like, uh, if you'd told me three or four years ago that I would be talking in public with a straight face about the importance of belief. I, I would have, you know, yeah. either laughed or, or hit you, <laughs> you know, that, 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 that I'm a super skeptical kind of guy and I, you know, I want empirical evidence and blah, 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 blah. So in a sense, one way to think about the book is that for me, it was a journey of starting with a very like either body centered or just empirical. Like I, I, even when I'm talking about the brain, I just want to know like which areas of the brain were lighting up uh, at, at the appropriate time. And, you know, I think it was the breaking two thing that, that caused me to kind of reflect on this when I started to think, okay, yeah, 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 the, the drafting and the shoes and blah, blah, blah. But um, what did Kipchoge bring to the table? And because he was so, Kipchoge was so focused on his own mental state and it made me reflect on, it, 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 to me, I ended up connecting that to, this, to the studies I was looking at on motivational self-talk, which is essentially kind of a, a, an attempt to monitor your or to alter your belief, or at least to alter what you're telling yourself about your state of belief. So, all of which is a long-winded way of saying that I think when I'm talking about belief now, to me at least, I'm talking about it from the basis of, you know, randomized, controlled scientific trials. Now, that stuff is hard to study, so I'm not, I'm by no means I'm claiming these studies are, are, are watertight, but uh, I I think it's coming for me. It's coming from more than a than a, just a kind of gut feeling that Eli Kipchoge is amazing. Therefore, you know whatever he says must be true. It's it's more that be, the I, science I, on belief. Yeah, that the, the, there is science on belief now. As imperfect as it as, as it is, it, it's it's enough to have shifted me from where I was twenty years ago, years ago in college, laughing at the sports psychologist, to like some of what they're doing is absolutely important and we're still trying to figure out which of it is or what the best way of doing it is but i i'm uh yeah i've been dragged sort of reluctantly into saying all right i think this stuff this stuff matters and there's science to back it up so there were several questions that came to us on from people that were looking for more practical application as we alluded to already and so this last question kind of gets to that which is that i get that you weren't trying to write a how-to book but if you did write one, what would it look like? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I, I can respect that question because he, he, he accepted he or she accepted me on my terms, but uh, I was curious. Yeah. So I, I was mentioning to you guys earlier that you know, one, one thing I've considered is, is kind of pulling together a book that 
that that that brings together the last ten years of what I've been writing about on sweat science. But there's two two stuff. Two, there's been two main streams, or maybe three main streams that I've been writing about in sweat science. One is this sort of the role of the mind and the limits of endurance. One is how do you run faster, like the sort of let's call it the beet juice, uh, um, <laughs> stream. beet juice part. Yeah. And then there's also the health stream, like what what's going to make you live longer or whatever. And so I think that that middle stream, the beet juice stream, and there's a lot more than beet juice. That I, I did go through ten years of sweat science when I, as I mentioned, when I was preparing this, starting to think about the book, I went and looked back through every article I'd ever written in, in this area, and there's a ton of practical stuff there, that I think could be brought together into like okay if you want to do heat training how do you do heat training here are the options if you want to do altitude training if you want to what is the best way to taper what is the uh, sort of there's a ton of questions that science has spoken on uh not n not definitively but ha has some suggestions on and if i if i were to do a book like that the the sort of tongue-in-cheek subtitle would be like you know the sweat science guide to marginal gains because all of these things are small so if you want if you want to take care of the big stuff, then it's like it's like Michael Joyner's haiku, right? Like run a lot of miles, some faster than race pace, rest once in a while. And the details I think the best people to write the, the details are the people who are training athletes and have seen what works and what doesn't work for athletes over over years and time. So the pro if I were to write a how to book the the disclaimer would be that this only matters if you're doing all the other stuff right and I'm not the right guy to tell you how to do the other stuff so i think there's interesting interesting mm -hmm. how-to stuff but but it's, it's the big principles that matter and that's the sort of, that's that's why i'm scared to write that book because i don't want to give the impression that the temperature of your ice bath is more important than whether you're doing your long run well we got i got a title for you the one percenters <laughs> that's what we call them the one percenters and but that means that 99 percent of it is pretty much dialed like pretty 99 percent of the other things are so crucial the one thing that's so interesting to me about that concept though is that we don't get out of our heads like we we you you might i might say when i was running com competitively and i think a lot of some of the things is reading your book and then having now talked with you three different times you filter a lot of your experience through your running experience and you're you you had a crucial aha moment when you broke four for the first time where you got tricked into it which is a great is is how you one of the things you start off in the book, and it's it's just a great way of pulling everybody into your story. At least every distance runner that I know will will be able to understand that. And then, so you do have this experience where you know that there are um, that even though you can do these other things, you can worry about pain, you can worry about heat, blah 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 blah. That comes down to your mind, and then the mind part is something that we're all trying to figure out. And when we talk about one percenters in our sport, we're probably talking about stretching and rolling out and doing weightlifting and one of the things that Chris and I are trying to get into people's heads is that I put that kind of we we, we facetiously put that in the, in the category of one percenters but in my mind I'm putting that category of the 99 percent like that's the shit you should be doing no matter what because it's part of your body but what are you doing about what's going on with your visceral experience like with your with your mental experience and what you're thinking about yourself and how you're operating that and I think though you were not so explicit in how to do that you definitely made me know that i would that chris and i both know we were on the right page and that others who probably have this feeling are on the right page and that your earlier self um did knew that too but we didn't have the words to say it or the cultural milieu in which we could discuss it and now our world is changing and even science has now gotten to the point where we're saying things that 
we thought were not interconnected might be interconnected and that interconnectedness is confusing and amazing and Albert Einstein is right. Who knows? Like, we don't know jack shit. And if you think you know jack shit, you're way behind. So anyway, I think your book, I think your book poetically and beautifully goes down that road. And while what it misses in, 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 in terms of what people want from a practical application, you throw the doors wide open and say, I worship at the feet of, the science, of science generally. And so this is what I believe about that. Personally, me, I'm like, I love to get that perspective view. I don't worship under the seed feet of science. I think that shit's just a whole bunch of malarkey and it's great. Maybe someone, <laughs> maybe someone won't get rheumatoid arthritis, um, but that's where the money's going is rheumatoid arthritis. It's not going towards performance running for runners. And so to me, I'm going to go work on the other shit that I think that might have an impact. So anyway. But, but why isn't that the book? Like the science on belief, because you talked about self-talk. You talked about mantras when we were talking to you last. But that is a tiny sliver, I would imagine, of the science that's out there, especially if you delve into the world of the science of psychology and, and things like that. So why isn't that the book? Hey, that's a good question. And I think if I'd spent 15 years on the book instead <laughs> of 10 years on the book, like, you know, yeah. this, this steamship doesn't turn around that easily. And, and but so you have a, what I mean, why isn't that the next book? Oh, the next book. Yeah. Why isn't that the next book? I don't know. He worships at the feet of science. But it's yeah. the science of belief. Like, <laughs> right. that's the point. It's both coming together to say that. And look, I mean, we, we might all be a product of chemical reactions that we're somehow attributing to the mind versus the body. I mean, that's our construct, right? Yeah. So there is. So there is this idea that the mind is science, that belief is created because of chemical reactions in the brain, that it's all really just electrons moving around and atoms moving around right so and and electrical impulses and whatever else so why isn't that the pursuit for you if you found this aha that suddenly like well i was wrong and as a college athlete there's this whole world out there that might actually be based in science that could tap into this great potential why wouldn't you be rabidly curious about that that's a really interesting question and i haven't thought about it and i would say Part of it is probably that I'm still really uncomfortable with <laughs> with the whole belief thing. That so so let me let me say let me say two two things or two competing things. One is is that yeah I'm probably still uncomfortable with the belief thing, and and related to that is that there's a so much bullshit <laughs> being propagated in this area right now. It's and it's like. I'm kind of dancing a line where I'm reporting on stuff that I find like electric brain stimulation that's like interesting and yet like there's so much so many like brain devices out there that so I'm like the the stuff that's good I'm 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 like oh I I I'm not sure I really believe it <laughs> and then there's so much bad stuff that if I so I mean so the the third answer is maybe that is the book that's I I, I should think about that but but I think probably my initial hesitation is like I I took I took I took myself as far as I could go on this book and hopefully <laughs> took some people with me like hopefully yeah. brought them along on that ride but it's like you're asking a lot for me to take another step <laughs> forward and, and uh you know get me to go to your yoga class or something like that this is <laughs> this is crazy crazy there's, there's no science in yoga class but there might be more science in this topic that we haven't yet pursued yeah you know like that, that that's an interesting question and I think 
I'd have to I'd have to find something like I'd have to find something concrete to grab onto, and maybe that's there if I look for it. But I don't know what it is yet. Yeah. Yeah, because it's all still new agey or wild westy, like new agey yeah. in the sense that all the same shit over and over and over again, right? Um, I can't I can't write a book about mindfulness because right, there's exactly. already been eight billion. <laughs> Lord, and, and I don't want to write a book about anything coming out of Silicon Valley with all because these it's too wild westy. Because yeah. it's like yeah, you know, exactly, exactly. I get that and. Again, I think maybe this will prove that your I think your book is a great distillation of this and it's also ahead of its time and I think perhaps you'll be able to come back to this as a second or third book or a revised edition or an expanded revised edition because I have a strong feeling your book's going to continue to sell and be something that people want to read over many 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 years because it is it's it's well written and it's out there and it's and it's got people talking. For those that want practical application on the book, this is what I would tell them. Here comes Coach Chris. Watch out. Here comes Coach Chris. (laughs) Is that, to me, the book represented a series of stories, studies, facts, anecdotes that shined a mirror on what might be holding me back. You know, I'm a 245 marathoner who wants to break 240 in the marathon. There's five more minutes to go get. Some of that's physical. Steve's in charge of that. Some of it's mental. And he's in charge of that because he won't let me yeah. in. But anyway, he won't, so, he won't. He doesn't believe in magic. And so, so some of that, but I can see reflected in the book, in the stories, in the anecdotes, things that would say, "Okay, Chris, you know that's a limit that you created in your head that might not be real. So you need to play in whatever way with with figuring out what's real in that space for for me." And so it sort of shined a spotlight on limits that I built up for myself that might not be real and that are forcing me to ask some hard questions to say, well, if that's not a real limit based on the science that Alex laid out, then I'm accountable for dealing with it. And so now I've got to figure out a way to deal with it. And so that to me is the real practical application is use it as a mirror for your own potential limits to say, look, those are bullshit. Now you got to go figure out what's real. I like that a lot. And, and, and I will say, you know, ever since I started writing about this topic, whenever I wrote in a magazine, the discussion with the editor is always, okay, but what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? How do we, what's the practical advice that a reader can take away from this? And my answer to that, which was never satisfactory, was like, I think understand, just understanding that limits aren't this immutable, concrete, non-negotiable thing, that when you feel that you've gone as hard as you can, that almost certainly doesn't reflect some sort of just simple mathematical calculation that your amount of oxygen was insufficient or your, your carbohydrates or whatever. Uh, to me, knowing that or, or thinking about that is super powerful just because it opens up possibilities and shifts accountability back to you. It's not just the universe didn't have enough oxygen for you. <laughs> so, and that's not a very, it's, 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 it's not a very easy takeaway to distill and certainly no ever no editor ever accepted that as a as an appropriate uh, it's not madison avenue is yeah, it yeah no, yeah it's, it's not it's, <laughs> it's, it's not going to play in peoria but, but uh, <laughs> um but yeah i think uh, that that's my hope my hope what you just said is is what i hope at least one percent of people who read the book take away from it awesome I, i'm putting you in the one percent sweet <laughs> awesome yep. i'll happily stay there and go seeking my other one percent <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for joining us alex this has been awesome we really appreciate it. It's good to have you live in person. I don't think you know, but you are our first episode in a new series of what we're calling the Endorphin Book Club. So we asked everybody to read this book 
um, in cool. advance and ask questions. And so we, since we were c- comfortable with it, we thought it was practical and we had you here for another thing. We thought it would be a good thing. So hopefully uh, people will look for this over time and, and find you in other ways. So uh, That's fantastic. And, and uh, you know, as you guys know, I've done a, a lot of interviews over the phone. And uh, there is something about being here that, that just makes it a, a whole different experience. So cool. It's been a ton of fun. Awesome. Cool. Well, we've got an event to get ready for now. Thanks, Alex, for joining us. And stay tuned, everybody, for our next book. We are working on our next book in the book club, trying to secure, secure the author, and we'll hopefully be announcing that soon. So stay tuned for that. Thanks, as always, for listening. You can check us out on our website at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at roguerunning. And go look for Alex at Sweat Science. And we'll talk to you guys soon.